We have a three-year-old in our home, and whenever she sees something that is gross, she says, that's yucky. It's yucky. Well, we've come to the yucky parts of the Bible. Today we're going to talk about unclean foods, what to do if a fly falls in your soup, bodily fluids, menstrual cycles, all kinds of yucky stuff that you probably did not even know was in the Bible. But it's there, and it's in the book of Leviticus, and this is one of the tasks of going verse by verse through the scriptures is that you really can't avoid it. We can't just go from a message on chapter 10 and jump all the way to the good stuff in chapter 16 with the Day of Atonement. But I trust as we go through this section of Scripture, you'll be able to glean some of the gold that is there for us. But just a little bit by way of review of what we've covered thus far in the book of Leviticus. In the first seven chapters, we covered those five different kinds of sacrifices uh, the burnt, the whole burnt offering, also known as the ascension offering, where the entire animal was consumed. And we talked about the grain offerings as an act of devotion and homage to the Lord. We talked about the peace offering as a celebration of, uh, uh, of the fellowship and peace that is available to believers. And then we talked about the sin or the purification offering. That offering actually is quite important because that is the dominant offering of how to deal with uncleanness. It's the sin offering. It was a, out of all the offerings, it was a purifying offering that was used to purify the tabernacle. And then we talked about the restitution offering. This is the offering when you've stolen something, taken something that doesn't belong to you. You're to bring this offering. You're to repay back uh, 125% of what you've taken. And then we talked about the priesthood last week. And the ordination of Aaron's sons and, and, uh, and then their first sacrifice that they, uh, they offer. And then the tragedy that takes place when Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, offer strange fire. And, and we saw how that leaves one longing for a perfect priest, a, a perfect representative to stand before God in our place. And obviously we see that fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now chapters 11 through 15 highlight the barriers that existed between God and his people in, in being able to approach God in his tabernacle. These were the things that were to make one regarded as unclean and not able to approach God. And, 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 and so you had to be clean and then you also had to be consecrated or made holy through sacrifice to approach God. And there was a, there's a, a kind of a, a kind of a, a line of cleanness. The, the ultimate existence of uncleanness was to be put outside the camp. We'll see that with the lepers today. But then you could be inside the camp and regarded as unclean. And you had to be made clean in order to approach God in the tabernacle and then to be made holy through sacrifice. And so what are we to make of all these unclean laws that God gives us in chapters 11 through 15? Well, let me kind of clear some of the rubble that you might have heard already. You know, you might have been, you know, on the Levitical diet or, you know, Daniel's diet or Ezekiel's diet or something like that. And, you know, you, you've heard of some of the, the, the different reasons for these laws, okay? Some of them, one we'll see is indeed health. But, but the first kind of proposal of, of what are we to make of these different laws are that these laws are just purely arbitrary. That God has given these laws. We don't know why he's given these laws. And, you know, the, this, this position could be summarized with the bumper sticker that uh, God said it, that settles it. Or God said it, I believe it, that settles it, Okay. Uh, and usually the rationale for this is, is Genesis chapter 2. Remember Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16? God 
spoke to the man, said, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, it seems somewhat arbitrary, right? Where God says, okay, you can eat from these other ones, and, but the, from this one tree you cannot eat from. But I would argue that even in that Genesis account, God does give us reason why not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says we see what happened when they ate from it, that they became like God, knowing good and evil. They became the arbiters of righteousness. So it seems like this arbitrary position of interpreting these laws as arbitrary it should be the last resort, okay? If the, if the scripture doesn't say, give us any hints as to why all these different laws are given, then, uh, you know, then we, they should have been just obeyed, rather, whether they were understood or not. The second is what we might call the cultic interpretation of these laws. Uh, and, and basically, the idea with this is that the worship in Israel was to be exclusive and distinct from the worship of the other pagan gods that surrounded Israel, the Canaanites, the Egyptians. And there might be a nugget of truth to this. We, we do see that pigs were offered as sacrifices uh, amongst the Egyptians, but it doesn't work with many of the animals. For instance, the bulls that we see offered here regularly with some of the different offerings uh, that are prescribed here in Leviticus. Uh, Bulls was the kind of the the mascot of the Canaanite worship that surrounded Israel. So that doesn't really seem to fit. A third kind of grid of interpretation over these laws is what we might call hygienic. That these laws were given for health purposes. And uh, usually the argument goes that, you know, some of these animals contain parasites and things like that. Um, But the assumption is, is that the Israelites didn't know how to cook their food, Um, which I'm pretty sure, uh, even as we see evidence here with these sacrifices, they were to be on a altar that burned with fire. And so while there might be some hygienic reasons, it doesn't seem to fit a proper understanding of why God gave these. And not only that, the Israelites, Moses certainly would, have, would not have known of any of the hygienic good that might come from these sacrifices. But then on top of that, when you come to the New Testament, what we find out with all these impurity laws, they are abrogated. In other words, in case you're wondering, you're allowed to eat pulled pork sandwich this afternoon. If you want to eat a lobster tail, it's permissible. Uh, in Acts chapter 10, you remember Peter has that vision of those unclean animals on the sheet, and he's instructed in that vision to eat these animals. And you remember Peter's response was, forbid it, Lord. No, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And it's in that context which God says, he says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means. And God says, do not declare unclean what I have made clean. And that was in the context of God encouraging Peter to go out and to be an evangelist to the Gentiles. Remember Cornelius, the Italian convert? And you say, well, what's that have to do? Well, these unclean laws were the very thing that prohibited those early Jewish Christians from being able to have uh, table fellowship with the Gentiles. And so it was important that part of uh, the new covenant would do away with these dietary laws that had become an obstacle for the early Jewish Christians to have fellowship with Gentile Christians in the church. No, no, that we have verses like Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, where it says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So that passage teaches us <clears throat> that the feasts, the holidays that, that we'll see 
later on in chapter 23, and even the Sabbath and the dietary laws, they were shadows that pointed to Christ. But now that Christ is here, you don't go back to the shadows. I've used this illustration before, but when I flew to South Africa some years ago, just after Bernie and I were engaged, and she gave me a little locket with her picture on it, as a reminder of her, to pray for her, not to pray to her, to pray for her. And I would pull out that, you know, little picture and remember her. And imagine if I got back from South Africa and I'm fixated upon this picture and she's sitting right next to me. The day goes by and I just keep staring at that picture and she says, aren't you going to talk to me? No, no, I'm looking at the picture. She's going to take that picture and rip it out of my hands and throw it away, right? Why would I be fixated on that which is the shadow when I have the reality there with me? So if these ancient dietary and clean and unclean laws were for hygienic reasons, and they're abrogated in the New Testament, then the obvious question was, well, Jesus doesn't want Gentiles to be healthy, (laughs) right? You know, he's okay with us Gentiles being fat and overweight and infected with parasites and and, and all that. No, no. Which, Which is, again, it's a hint that these weren't for hygienic reasons, So then what, what's the purpose of them? Well, I'm going to contend for a symbolic interpretation of these dietary laws, that they have symbolic meaning that echoes back from the Garden of Eden. Now, now this symbolic interpretation, it, it's, it's not novel, but it has been abused, okay? Okay. Uh, You can look at some of the early church writers, for instance, the Venerable Bede said that the horns of the clean animals symbolize strength and faith and being able to conquer sin in the battle. Well, that's cute and charming, but probably not what Moses intended in the dietary laws related to clean animals and their horns. Novation, another early church writer, said that unclean animals represent various sins. Clement of Alexandria said that the pig symbolized all that is filthy-minded and disgusting. So much for your bacon. But I think these early church writers were on to something in that there's symbols there. But they, the symbols, and, and there, there needs to be some governing rules when you take any kind of symbolic interpretation and it always I think must be context that governs your understanding of the symbols okay and so what we're going to see here with these unclean animals is there's a pattern that each of them follow Okay, And this, this, again, the context of Leviticus, Leviticus sits in the heart of one volume that we call the Pentateuch or the Torah. The first five books of the Bible are really one volume. And at the beginning of this volume, God creates, right? Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. It was without form. There wasn't order, and it was empty, okay? And then God begins to bring order, form, and to fill it. The first three days of creation, he brings order. He separates the expanses, the light from the darkness, the skies from the ground, the water on the ground. That's what he does in the first three days. In the next three days, he fills. He fills the, the expanse with, with the, the moon and the stars. And then he fills the water with sea creatures. And then he fills the ground with animals. And the crown then of his creation on day six is humans. 
Adam and Eve, made in the image of God. And what you wind up seeing with these unclean animals is that they do not fit into their order in creation. In other words, God makes land animals and they're supposed to walk and then eat the vegetation. Well, one of the things we find out with the land animals is that the ones that are unclean, they don't have the proper footwear for walking, they don't have a split hoof, and they don't chew the cud. We're going to find out the same thing with the sea creatures, that there's certain sea creatures, if they have fins and if they have scales, then, then they're ordered properly in their sphere of creation, but... If it's like a lobster that's basically an insect that swims, then it's not regarded as unclean. It doesn't fit that proper order of creation. A guy named Gordon Wenham, who has a helpful commentary, says this, The animal world is divided into three spheres, those that fly in the air, those that walk on the land, and those that swim in the seas. Each sphere has a particular mode of motion associated with it. Birds have two wings with which to fly and two feet to walk. Fish have fins and scales with which to swim. Land animals have hoofs to run with. The clean animals are those that conform to these standards, uh, standard pure types. Those creatures which in some way transgress the boundaries are regarded as unclean. Thus, fish without fins and scales are unclean. Insects which fly but have many legs are unclean. Whereas locusts, which have wings and only two hopping legs, are considered clean. Animals with an indeterminate form of motion, namely swarming, or I call it scurrying, those are nasty. Those are unclean. Animals with um, holiness requires that individuals conform to the class to which they belong. And so these animals that don't fit the order of creation are regarded as unclean. Another important note about all these ritual purity laws is is, it wasn't so much of a matter of morality as much as ritual purity and being able to approach God in the tabernacle. When we get to the to the finish of all these different laws in chapter 15 in verse 31. It says, Thus you shall keep the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness so that they will not die in their uncleanness by their defiling my tabernacle that is among them. So this was about being regarded as clean to approach God in the tabernacle. If you were considered unclean by eating some of these animals or, or uh, the different things that we're going to talk about with these ritual laws, you weren't allowed to approach God in the tabernacle. It was about ritual purity. And, and again, keeping the context, we're going to see in each of these areas It's something related to life outside of the garden, something related to the curse that sin brings. So let's look first, the curse of disorder in the animal world. And and this is what pretty much all of chapter 11 covers, these different animals. General land animals and uncleanness in verses 3 and 4. Whatever divides a hoof, thus making split hoofs, and choose the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, you are not to eat of these. Among those which chew the cud or among those which divide the hoof, the camel, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. So this would be the land animals. The land animals that don't have a split hoof and the proper footwear and don't chew the cud, namely eating the vegetation of the ground, these were considered unclean. They didn't fit the proper order of a land animal. We see the same thing with water animals, water creatures. In verse 9, you may eat whatever is in the water. All that have fins and scales Those in the water, in the seas, or in the river, 
you may eat. So fins and scales, if a creature has that, you're allowed to eat it. If it doesn't, then it's disordered and regarded as unclean. And if were you to eat that, you would be considered unclean and there had to be a process by which you would become clean again. Flying creatures, verse 13. Thus, moreover, you shall detest among those birds. They are abhorrent, not to be eaten. The eagle and the vulture and the buzzard and the kite and the falcon in its kind, every raven in its kind, and ostrich and owl and seagull and hawk in its kind. This is interesting because these birds would seem to be doing what they're supposed to be doing. I mean, they have wings, right? But what do you notice about each of these birds? There's something that they do. They're scavenger birds. They eat other animals with the blood in it, okay? This is going to become another important feature throughout these ritual purity laws. When there's blood, bodily fluids... It's a sign of death. I mean, even, even amongst my children, this is obvious. When children see blood, they panic, right? Is it bleeding? Is it bleeding? Right? I'm dying! Is there blood? And then finally, they, they learn enough science, right? And then you tell them one day, your whole body is filled with blood. What? There's blood inside my body? It's good to have blood in your body, but blood and other fluids outside your body is actually a sign of death. And so eating these birds, which feast upon other animals with blood in them, you're going to be regarded as unclean. What was one of the consequences of Adam and Eve outside the garden? It was the curse of death. God told Adam, dust you are and to dust you will return. You are going to die. And so any contact with death... You were regarded as unclean and you could not approach the God who is the source of life. And wouldn't you know with these animals, now I don't know, does this mean that all these animals that are unclean before the fall of man, they, you know, those animals with the split hooves had, or or without the split hooves, had split hooves, did chew the cut? It might mean that. We do know of one animal who comes up in the Garden of Eden who was cursed in such a way that it became unclean, namely the serpent. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go, dust you will eat all the days of your life. And isn't it fascinating that one of the animals and its uncleanness are those that go on their belly at the end of Leviticus chapter 11, unclean. Also coming into contact with any dead animal, verse 32 of chapter 11. Also anything on which one of them may fall when they're dead becomes unclean, including any wooden article or clothing or skin or sack or any article of which use is made. It shall be put in the water and unclean until evening. Then it becomes clean. So contact with any dead, unclean animal in anything that that animal comes into contact or that insect comes into contact with was regarded as unclean. But then when we go to chapter 12, in chapter 12, Beginning in verse 1, it says, The Lord God spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth... And bears a male child, 
She shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. He sh- then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are complete. We say, well, this seems odd. I mean, what could be a greater picture of life than a woman giving birth, right? Except all that blood, all that bodily fluid. I had to spend one semester as a student nurse on a labor and delivery floor, and there was a lot of yuckiness on that floor. And believe you me, the women, they didn't want me in their room. They're okay maybe with a male OBGYN, but they don't want a male nurse in that room. So I spent most of the week in the doctor's lounge eating crackers and cookies. But also, wouldn't you know, this a woman giving birth regarded as unclean for a fixed amount of time. Remember one of the curses towards the woman? The woman, he said in verse 16 of Genesis chapter 3, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Now the pain... I think is referring to the physical pain of labor and delivery, but it's far broader than that. It's the reality of pain, sometimes emotional pain, the emotional pain of infertility. Sometimes it's the pain of a stillborn child. And sometimes it's the pain of the reality of, of, of all this blood and bodily fluid and the healing process that's needed after birth, all of this blood and bodily fluid as a sign of death as a sign of curse, as a sign of life outside of paradise, as a sign of life outside the Garden of Eden. And now God says in the Garden of Eden 2.0, if a woman is to come into my tabernacle, in my presence, there must be a purification process. That's in verse 8. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she will be clean. Sound familiar? Same offering that Jesus was brought with with Mary and Joseph, two turtle doves. So death is outside the garden. Disordered animals outside the garden. Now chapter 13. 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when a man has on the skin of his body a swelling or a scab or a bright spot and it becomes an infection of leprosy on the skin of his body, Then he shall be brought to Aaron, the priest, or to one of the sons of his priest. So so this is the skin disease laws that we see in chapters 13 and chapters 14. Now, most of your English translations translate as leprosy. And when we think of leprosy, we think of contemporary leprosy, also known as Hansen's disease. Now, it probably included that but was far more broad than Hansen's disease. It included a multitude of different kinds of skin diseases and infections and things like that. One of the reasons why we know it's broader than that because because as we read later on in this section, houses can get leprosy, okay? So it's not merely talking about Hansen's disease. It's talking about skin diseases in general. And then verse 30 and four through 42. Now if a man loses the hair of his head, he is bald, he is clean. 
If his head becomes bald at the front and the sides, he's bald on the forehead, he is clean. But if on the bald head or on the bald forehead there occurs a reddish-white infection, it is leprosy breaking out on his bald head or on his bald forehead. I just read that to comfort some of you bald people. As long as there's no blemish or nothing oozing out, you're okay, all right? But again, fast forward to verse 44 through 46. As for the leper who has the infection. So this is, you've gone to the priest. The priest looks at, yeah, you've got leprosy. His clothes shall be torn. His hair, the hair of his head shall be uncovered. He shall cover his mustache and cry, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Wow. Chew on that for a moment. Social distancing on steroids. Right? And he was obligated anytime he came around somebody to say, unclean, unclean, so that people went away from him and didn't come into contact with him. He had to live in seclusion and in isolation. Now, again, let me ask you something. Anything related to the fall of man in Genesis 3 to skin? Well, Genesis 2, 24, 25, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then verse 25, that awkward verse that often pastors preaching at weddings don't get to, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. They're both naked and not ashamed. But then after Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against their creator, in verse 7, the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves to cover, uh, fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And so here again, back in Eden, there's something related to skin and shame of nakedness that comes about because of sin. And so here, in symbolic form, in Leviticus 13 and 14, skin diseases are a reminder of the shame that rebellion against God brings as a reminder that this is life outside of the tabernacle. In order to go back into the tabernacle, you need to be cleansed. There has to be a proper procedure And so we get to that procedure in chapter 14, beginning in verse 2. Chapter 14 is like the gospel for lepers. This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now he shall be brought to the priest. And the priest, I love this, I love this. Because if, if the priesthood in Scripture is a picture of Christ as the ultimate priest, the priest shall go out to the outside of the camp. The priest goes to the outside of the camp. It's almost like Philippians 2, who being in the very form of God did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took the very form of a servant, being found in appearance as a man He came outside the camp to bring us filthy lepers into the camp. Thus the priest shall look, and if the infection of leprosy has been healed in the leper, verse 4, then the priest shall give orders, take two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet string and hyssop, the one who is to be cleansed, the priest shall give orders to slay one bird in an earthenware vessel over running water. As for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet string and the hyssop and shall dip them in the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water. 
He shall then sprinkle seven times the one who is cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean. Then he shall let the live bird go free over the open field. Does that sound familiar like anything? A couple things might come to your mind. Two birds, one killed, one set free. This is anticipating chapter 16, right? With the scapegoat ceremony, the two goats, the one the lot falls on the one goat and it gets offered to Yahweh and sacrificed. The other sent outside the camp. But it also might remind you of something else in Torah, in Pentateuch. Remember Noah on the ark sending out the bird? And, it, and we have in the, the ark account a kind of picture of new creation, revitalization. And so similarly here with the leper, new creation, it's day eight that he's allowed back inside the camp. And then notice, drop your eyes down to verse 12. Then the priest shall take one male lamb and bring it for a guilt offering. Now he's inside the camp. Now the leper has actually even gone back into the tabernacle with a log of oil. That's not a literal log. A log is a measurement. And present them as a wave offering before the Lord. Next he shall slaughter the male lamb in the place where they slaughter the sin offering and the burnt offering at the place of the sanctuary for the guilt offering, like the sin offering, belongs to the priest that is most holy. The priest shall then take some of the blood of the guilt offering and the priest shall put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed and on the thumb of his right hand on the big toe of his right foot. Does that remind you of anything last week? Remember the priest? Blood on the ear, blood on the right thumb, blood on the sandal toe. A picture of wholeness, consecration, devotion unto the Lord. So all these these different things, they're symbols, they're pictures of how man can come back. Though man stained and outside the garden and cursed by sin and rebellion, how he can be made clean and brought back into the presence of Almighty God. Chapter 13, verses 34 to 37, deals with leprous homes. Verse 34, when you enter the land of Canaan, which I give you for a possession, and I put a mark of leprosy on the house in your land, uh, uh, in the land of your possession. So here, homes, you know, sometimes you get mold in the home, mildew, Stuff that needs to be dealt with, that's what it's talking about here. And this anticipates, actually, the cleansing of another house in chapter 16 that we'll see, namely, the tabernacle, God's house. As if this wasn't all enough, let's get some more yucky stuff. The curse of death with the loss of bodily fluid. Chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. The Lord also spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. Say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. Verse 16, now if a man has a seminal emission, he shall bathe all of his body in water and be unclean till evening. As for the garment or any leather in which there is a seminal emission, it shall be washed with water. It shall be unclean until evening. If he lies with a woman so that there is a seminal emission, they shall both bathe in water and be clean until evening. And again, this is, you obviously ask, you know, I mean, isn't, Relations between a husband and a wife, doesn't this bring forth life? But again, whenever there's bodily fluid outside the body, it's a sign of death. In Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, God told Adam, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you shall return. So with all these different ritual purity laws... All of them are some ways symbols 
of life that's disordered outside the Garden of Eden, whether it's the animals that don't quite fit the pattern of flying in the air, or swimming in the sea, or walking on the ground, or, or whether it's the, the, the skin of, uh, of leprosy that brings its shame as a sign and a reminder of Adam and Eve driven outside the garden, God Himself having to clothe them, or whether it's the pictures and symbols of death, whether it's through blood, even of a woman bearing children, or whether it's through, through, through the bodily fluids of a man and a woman or minstrel cycles. All these were pictures and signs of death. These were all consequences of rebellion of man and for man to come into the presence of the life-giving God, the God who is the source of life. He had to be cleansed. He had to be made clean and then made holy. And so you can obviously see, and again, because some people probably well-meaning seek to abide by these laws, you can see the very fact that there is no tabernacle today, there is no temple today, they're obsolete. It was for getting back to God in the tabernacle. To try to institute these laws without a sacrificial system, without a priesthood, without a temple is utterly absurd. But they do teach us something. They teach us about man. They teach us about sin. They teach us about fall. So what's the motivation? So that was the meaning of these ritual purity laws, in case you're taking notes. What about the motivation? And this is, this is where we see the most clear continuity in the New Testament. The motivation. Why obey these laws? Well, thankfully, God tells us. We read it for you two times. In 11, 44 and 45, For I am the Lord your God. <clears throat> Consecrate yourselves, therefore. Make yourselves holy. Why? Because I am your God. Be holy, for I am holy. Sound familiar? You New Testament Christians? It should. Some, somewhere, Peter, maybe? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The motivation for obeying these laws was first of all, God is your covenant God. I am the Lord your God. And isn't that a great motivation for Christians today? Isn't I have to think that's probably why Peter quoted Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44 and 45. Even though these laws may not be directly applicable to us, they are all-encompassing laws of life in which the covenant believer is to live in holiness. And what is holiness? Now, sometimes when we hear the word holiness, we think that means, you know, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. It's not merely outward actions. It's the whole of life. To be holy means to be distinct and devoted unto the Lord. To be distinct and devoted unto the Lord. And God gives New Testament commands that are all encompassing like this. Like, like how about 1 Corinthians 10, 31? In whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That's your dietary law as new covenant believer. 
Lunch this afternoon can be an act of glorifying and worshiping God as you come to him with a thankful heart. Or it can be an act of rebellion if you grumble at what you're having for lunch. Oh, eating that again. God's New Testament commands encompass the whole of life. And, and because God is, he says, for I am the Lord your God. Do this. Do this for me. It's like him asking, do this for me. I'm your God. I'm in covenant relationship with you. And think about that. Those of you who are here and married, you have one covenant relationship with your wife or your husband. And you probably do things for them that you wouldn't normally do for any other human being. You know, you put the toilet seat back down. You do all kinds of strange laws, right? But you do it as an expression of love. This is for you, sweetie. I'm taking out this garbage. It's for you. In a similar way, This is the motivation for the New Testament believer. You're in covenant relationship. You are wed to Lord Jesus Christ. But also, God says, do it because of my character. Consecrate yourselves, back to Leviticus 11, 44b. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. Why? For I am holy. You be holy because I am holy. You be distinct and devoted to me because I am distinct and devoted to me. My character, I am holy. And so you be holy. And and isn't that so much of the Christian life? You're aiming to be holy like Jesus. You're aiming to love like Jesus. You're aiming to be gentle like Jesus. You're aiming to love righteousness and truth like Jesus. You're aiming to be patient like Jesus, to be holy as God is holy. But one more motivation here. I love this. We see this motivation in verse 45 of Leviticus 11. For I am the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, now again, context. This is Leviticus. For you astute Bible scholars, what comes before Leviticus? Exodus, right? What happened in Exodus? Answer, the Exodus. God brought them out of Egypt. God, in the wonder of his grace and kindness, took a people who were being oppressed, bludgeoned, beat down by tyranny, dictatorial authority, having their baby boys tossed in the Nile River. And God, the Almighty, heard the cries of their heart, and he saved them. He rescued them. He delivered them. And now he says, do this. Why? I saved you. I rescued you. Does that sound familiar for New Testament Christians? How about Titus chapter 2, verse 11? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live righteously, soberly in this present age as we await the blessed coming and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared and it teaches you, don't do this and do this. You see, friends, God's grace and salvation is the engine to fuel your obedience. Pull, your up by the, pull yourself up by the bootstrap, bootstraps. Christianity will only take you so far. But when your heart is warmed and melted by the reality that I deserve to be in the confines of hell at this very moment, Jesus died for me, he rescued me, he opened my eyes, and now he says, Matt, 
obey me. Okay. I'll do it. This is the motivation. So my New Testament Christian friends, are you aiming to live a life that's distinct and devoted to the Lord? Or have you fallen into the trap that makes you think you need to be just like the world to win the world? No, you need to be different. No, I'm not saying in some kind of weird way where you dress different, your hair is different, you know. I'm saying in the things you believe and the way you live, your attitude, all those New Testament commands that make us radically different than the rest of the world. And are you being fueled in your Obedience and your holiness by the reality God is your covenant God. He is the holy God and he has been kind to you in the gospel. If not, my friend, throw some wood on the fire of your motivation this morning and seek to obey him. Well, the meaning of the ritual purity laws, these are all pictures of life outside the garden, life outside the tabernacle, The motivation, God's character, God's covenant, God's kindness. Thirdly, the Messiah of the ritual purity laws. You knew I had to get there. Paul in Colossians says that these things, talking about the dietary laws, are a shadow of the things to come, the substance, the reality is in Christ. And so in what ways do these ritual impurity laws point us to Jesus. Well, it should be no shocker that when we come to the New Testament, we would see the Lord Jesus himself take head on these ritual impurities. And that's exactly what we see. When you come to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1, there is a man with leprosy. And in verse 40 of chapter 1, the leper came to Jesus and he's beseeching him, falling on his knees before him. Now keep in mind, we already read what the leper was supposed to do. Unclean, unclean, get away from me! And so the very fact that he approached Jesus, he was taking a risk. He was taking a risk that Jesus wouldn't take his sandal to the side of his dome. Right? Now I'm unclean. Thanks, dude. Can't go into the temple. Got to go through this whole process. Get your dirty self out of here. But that's not what Jesus does. The clean one encounters the unclean one and makes him clean. And so the leper says to Jesus in verse 40, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion. He stretched out his hand, touched him, said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. He sternly warned him to, to uh, he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. He said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. Go back, read Leviticus again. There's a whole procedure. But he was clean. The one who was clean did not become unclean by the unclean man, but he made that which was unclean to be clean. We see this also later on in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Mark. Remember Jairus, his baby girl's sick. His baby girl's on her deathbed. And he desperately wants Jesus to heal his baby girl. 
And he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, can you, can you come with me? And you remember, that got interrupted, right? <laughs> because as that's all taking place, there's a woman in the midst of this crowd who touches Jesus' cloak. And we're told by Mark that she had been bleeding for 14 years. No doctors were able to heal her. Nobody could help her out. And again, remember Leviticus? If you're bleeding, use unclean. It's a sign of death. And so this woman was in a perpetual state of uncleanness, could not go into the temple, would have infected anybody around her with uncleanness, and out of desperation, she just tries to touch Jesus' cloak. And she touches him, and it's like a power surge goes out of him, and he's like, whoa, who touched me? And he asks, who touched me? And the woman, no doubt reluctantly, probably fearful, she's going to get a rebuke from Jesus in her state of uncleanness for touching him. But Mark 5, 29 says, immediately her flow of blood was dried up and she felt it in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving that power was proceeding from him and had gone forth, he turned around to the crowd and said, who touched my garments? The disciples said to him, there's a lot of people here, Jesus, and you're asking who touched you? Verse 32, he looked around, he sees what the woman had done, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. The unclean woman encounters clean Jesus And instead of infecting Jesus and making him unclean, the clean makes the unclean clean. But we got interrupted. Remember Jairus? Jairus begging Jesus. And I I can, I wish there was some video footage of Jairus during this moment. You know, tapping his watch. Please, 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 woman, get out of here. Now, none of that's recorded in the Scripture. That's my own unsanctified imagination. But Jesus begins back on his way. Verse 37 of chapter 5. Jesus allows no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John. They came to the house of the synagogue official when he saw all the commotion, the people loudly weeping and wailing and entering in. He said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, putting them all out. He took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, and he entered the room where the child was, and taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum. And again, keep the context. Remember, these Jews, Jesus himself being a Jew, the other Jews around him, they were immersed in Levitical law. They knew it. You don't touch a dead body. Not unless you want to be regarded as unclean. But Jesus, plowing through all of that, again, the clean one, touches the unclean corpse of this Jairus' baby girl and says, Talitha kum, my daughter, get up. And again, the clean makes the unclean clean in the most radical kind of way. The one who is the source of life brings life to the one who is dead. Friend, this is what Jesus does. He makes a way back 
to the garden, back to the tabernacle, back to the presence of God by dealing with all of our uncleanness and all that was symbolized in the Levitical law, making a way back to God. One of the most sobering verses in the Bible is found in Revelation chapter 22. In verse 27, I'm sorry, 15 of 22 and 27 of 21, it says, Neither anyone that is unclean shall be in the new Jerusalem. You have to be made clean. You have to touch Jesus' garment. You have to have him touch you. You have to have those words, Talithoth kum, come to you. Get up, my child. You have to come to him with the posture. I'm willing. I know you can make me clean. And my friends, it was on the cross at Golgotha that Jesus himself, the clean one, took upon himself all of our uncleanness and all the fury of all that belongs outside the camp was poured upon him and he bore in his body all of our uncleanness so that anybody can go to him by faith. And but just with the touch of his garment, the touch of faith become clean. Friend, is that you this morning? Have you been made clean by Jesus? If not, get clean and get clean quickly. And then you will have access to the presence of Almighty God, a relationship with him. Let's pray.